Well, good morning. My name is Sam Caston Smith, and I am the head of school for Bethany Christian School across the street, which is the church's largest outreach ministry. Uh, and we're just now finishing, I'm finishing up, my first year at Bethany. And it has been an absolute privilege and pleasure, well, uh, privilege and pleasure to serve in that capacity over there. And coming to the end of this first year, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. So it's kind of like time is just going... And I know everybody in here with kids is saying, yeah, you just wait. But my five-year-old is graduating from the pre-K and he's going over to kindergarten and my three-year-old's going into PK3. I asked my five-year-old, what are you most looking forward to about going to kindergarten across the street? Because he's graduating our preschools over here and from kindergarten to eighth grade is on that side of the street. So I said, what are you most looking forward to about going across the street? And my five-year-old Caleb looks at us and says, I'll get to see some chicks. (laughs) And so like you right now, I'm sitting there going, what? And it it dawned on us that he was talking about our first grade teacher, Katie Coleman's egg hatching project. It's like, oh, got it. At least I hope so. I hope. But no, I love Bethany. And one of the, one of my favorite things, and it is so critical when I, when I started this job, it's because I believe that one of the greatest callings that God gives to us is to pass on the treasures from one generation to the next. And that's not, I mean, it's, it's certainly the things of the nation. It's freedom. It's liberty. It's all those things. But the heritage of the faith, so, so important. So right now, my two little boys are big into superheroes. And Caleb's kind of the tyrant when we play. He'll say, I'm Superman and you be the worthless bomb on a log. Like, he gets to pick his superhero and he always wants to be the one who's obviously going to win, like any kid. But my son Jacob, his answer when we play superhero, I love. Caleb will pick his superhero and we'll go to Jacob and Jacob will say, I, 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 I want to be Miss Didi. <laughs> Didi Lominick, who's Pastor Matt's wife, who leads worship for our chapels. And that's what he wants to be, because when he thinks of a superhero, he thinks of somebody who's leading people in worship. And you hear that and you think, oh, that's, that's really cute. But in a very real sense, if you're looking for somebody with supernatural, world-changing, turn-the-world-upside-down power, it's those who lead and worship. I think, I think my son Jacob's answer is actually a lot more realistic. And so today we talk about this passage where Paul goes to Thessalonica and you're going to see this guy is so absolutely radical for the faith. He understands that this kingdom and this world is filled with all kinds of corruption and he walked headlong into it. As we've read the book of Acts, we've heard about his struggles and how he gets beaten and tossed and booted from city to city. And he keeps going headlong into these cities. And it's because Paul had this understanding of how radical the gospel is, how absolutely world-changing it is when you lead somebody into the worship of Christ. 
And my hope for me, my hope for you, my hope for real, my hope for the church is that we begin to catch that, that zeal that looks at the world and says that all the kingdoms of men and all the cities and everything that we place our hope in in the worldly sense is garbage compared to knowing the Lord. And if there's anything I want, I want to spend and pour out my life so that other people around me will grow more passionate about the Lord. Because if I'm going to leave a dent in this world or the next, it's only going to be in the name and for the sake of Christ. You know, this week was it was a, it was a rough week. It actually started on Monday. I hope everybody here had a great Fourth of July week. My week started this Monday with a phone call and a familiar word from my brother. And he said, are you sitting down? Something bad's happened, okay? I know it's coming. And he says, mom's been rushed by ambulance to the hospital. She's in the ICU. She's had another heart attack. She's fine. She's stable. So I get in my car, drive up to Vero, and I'm sitting with my dad in the critical care unit. My mom's on the bed. My dad's sitting in the chair. And I'm thinking, man, what a difference three years makes. Three years ago... My mom had her heart attack. As you can tell, she's actually one of the cast and Smiths who's in shape, which makes this... What? What? Anyway, I'm not going to go there. But she's sitting on her bed, and I'm thinking, man, we've been here before three years ago. When this all happened, I was a believer in my family. My dad had always, anytime religion came up, because, man, if I wanted anything, I wanted my family to come to faith. And so we're in this room and I know my dad, every time I've ever brought up the Lord, ever brought up religion, he changes the subject, doesn't want to hear it, turns the volume up loud on the TV, wants nothing to do with it. And so we're sitting around my mom three years ago and she has an aneurysm on her ascending aorta, which is, I mean, that's three seconds. If it bursts three seconds and then you're dead and the doctor says that it's got the thickness of saran wrap, you can see the blood rushing through it on the other side. Don't know if she's going to be around five seconds from now. Don't want her to laugh. Don't want her to cough. Don't want her to do anything that might put a strain on her heart. And I'm watching my dad three years ago who has always sworn off any intimate sense of connection with Christ or the Lord. And he's a mess. Here's this woman that he has grown his, almost his whole adult life with, that he loves to pieces, though he may not always show it like he should. And everything in his world is crumbling. All the security, everything that he's imagined for his future, growing old, retirement, going on vacations together, and here's the love of his life in a bed, and you don't know if she's going to be alive five seconds from now. And so as she's going into, and during this time, churches, First Baptist Church of Vero is coming into the room. They're bringing magazines for her to read, flowers to decorate her room. They're bringing meals to the home. We don't even go to that church. The pastor of the church shows up in the room, talks to my dad, prays over my mom. 
And I'm thinking, oh, please take root. But I see nothing. So as my mom is being taken away to go under the surgery that has a, a pretty high incidence of failure, I put my hand on her forehead and I crouch real close to her and I say, can I pray for you? And she says, absolutely, my mom's a believer. And so I pray not knowing if I'm going to see her on the other side of this operation and I'm begging God for mercy for her, that he would protect her, that he would keep her alive through this, that he would give the doctors wisdom, that he would be with her to comfort her and give her peace. And while I'm in the middle of my prayer, my brother Dave, not a believer, shouts out, Allahu Akbar, and the ICU. I know it's it's ridiculous, but that's a Caston Smith. <clears throat> and for him, this idea of leaning upon the Lord or whatever, it's so uncomfortable that he'd do anything to break that moment. And so we're leaving and we leave the hospital and we're walking out and I'm thinking to myself, but I don't confront him because believe it or not, he's bigger than me. And meaner. But my dad looks at him and says, and just lights into him. And for the first time ever, I'm like, yes, yes. I've got, a, I got someone got my back. And my brother Dave defends himself and he says, Dad, you think that we really need to pray to God? Like if there's a God out there who's all powerful, you think he really needs to hear from us about what we need? He knows. What's the sense of praying? And my dad looks back at Dave and says, Dave, have you ever stopped to think that maybe we pray not because God needs to know what we're thinking, but because we need to go to him in our weakness and confess how fragile we are? And I thought to myself, man, dad's never been to seminary, but he can preach. (laughs) And here we are. It's in this moment when everything so precious is being ripped away and everything is right on that cusp and it seems so desperate that God reaches into this man who I swear might be the most stubborn human being on the planet and grabs a heart of stone and just begins to break it and break it to pieces. And so after the surgery, my mom comes out okay and I'm visiting with her and my dad's coming to pick me up. I climb in his truck and he says to me, Sam, I've listened to your sermons. Now my dad, since I've gone through seminary, been going through seminary. I've preached up in that area a number of times at churches, and he, as a matter of principle, has always refused to go because he thinks I'm crazy. I left a Fortune 500 company with a 401k plan and everything else to go into ministry. Who? What kind of crazy person does that? Thought I was throwing away my life, and we're sitting in the truck as we're driving home, and he said, Sam, I've listened to your sermons. And I'm thinking, you're like computer illiterate to the nth degree. There's no way you found my sermons online. And he says, your sister-in-law, Julie, burned a CD for me. And so while you were up with your mom, I was listening to your sermons. It's pretty incredible stuff, Sam. God's given you a gift. It makes me want to cry just saying it. And I can look back three years ago. When my mom is brought to the door of death, and I can honestly say thank you, God, for that. Because that cracked my dad's heart, and it cracked my brother's hearts. And if we understand that, like that's the way God operates. When He's about to move in a big way in your life, He will come and He will take what you prize most above Him, and He will kindly rip it out of your hands. 
because he loves you. And thank God for that. You know, my mom, when she retired, she got into Fox News today where is is a 4th of July weekend. So when my mom retired, she she went home and basically watched cable news 24 hours a day, which is probably why she had her heart attack. But she's so saturated with the world. She knows how it's been. She grew up in the 50s. She's seen it when you could leave your doors unlocked and you hear all the stories. And now she's watching the non-stop news cycle of corruption and $16 trillion in debt, 50 million abortions, the redefinition of the family, children being born out of wedlock at record numbers, the American people despairing, the Republicans are worthless, the Democrats are worthless, there seems to be no solution. She looks at it and she just despairs. I saw on the news yesterday that the California legislature, both houses, Senate and House, approved a bill that will let California students choose what gender they are when they go into bathrooms or lockers. Oh, that won't end badly. <laughs> but this is like, this is the culture that we live in. It just seems the more you watch it, You see the poor being exploited. You see corporations growing. You see the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And you see more and more that everybody's eyes are fixed on government for all the solutions. And man, if your eyes are fixed on government for all your solutions, that's a desperate place. But I want to walk you into Paul's world for a moment. If you lived in first century and you're a Jew, how do you respond How do you respond to this new movement of Christians? I want you to imagine yourself in Paul's shoes or in the shoes of the Jews that persecuted him. If you live in that first century, what do the headlines of that day, what do they seem like? Well, you look and you see in the tables of the Roman law, deformed infants should be killed or Your great philosopher of the day, Seneca, saying and boasting that Romans drown children who are at birth weakly and abnormal. And I think through this congregation, I think through the families I know of children who've had babies that might be considered weakly or abnormal. In the Roman world, it was a proud thing to drown them. Or, suppose your neighbor gets this letter which was found recently. Know that I'm still in Alexandria. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son. And as soon as I receive payment, I'll send it up to you. If you deliver before I come home, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, kill it. Or the Roman historian Plutarch wrote that if you went south to Carthage, from there the people offered up their own children to fertility gods. And those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats while the mother stood by without tear or moan. These are voices from the first century. Imagine these being your headlines. (laughs) Imagine being Paul walking into this mess or going to Corinth where on the summit of the city to worship the goddess Aphrodite, they had built a temple to Aphrodite where a thousand prostitutes worked around the clock so that you could go and worship her. <laughs> you think our culture 
is upside down. Or in the Republic, talking about the poor and the downtrodden. This is Plato's idea. That a poor man who is no longer able to work because of sickness should be left to die. Or the Roman philosopher Plautus saying, you do a beggar a bad service by giving him food and drink. You lose what you give and you prolong his life for misery. So the best thing you can do to a poor person is just let him starve to death. He's miserable anyway. Feel how saturated this culture is in utter wickedness with no regard for the sanctity of life, no regard for the sanctity of marriage or sex. Everything is rampant and celebrated. Now I want you to imagine being a Jew in that culture. And you read about your leader, Tiberius, who decides during the middle of his time as emperor, he's just going to leave Rome, he's going to go up to a mountain palace called Capri, and he's going to turn a palace into a brothel, and he's going to live there, doing all kinds of debauchery. Or, this is Tacitus, he says, Tiberius plunged into every wickedness and disgrace, and when fear and shame were cast off, he simply indulged his inclinations, followed after his flesh. And then the emperor after him, Caligula, This is in the period right after Jesus' death. This guy is synonymous with evil. You've got Seneca, who is going to be killed by Nero, by the way, saying of Caligula, nature seemed to have brought him forth to show what mischief could be affected by the greatest vices supported by the greatest authority. And this guy would go to places where there were circuses and people being put to death. And he would, one time they ran out of people to put to death, he ordered the first five rows thrown into the pit so that they could be mauled and mutilated. This guy was known to order forced rapes at his dinner parties. Imagine living in that world. Or Claudius you have here, who, by the way, of the first 15 emperors, he's the only one that never had an accusation of pedophilia. So he's got that going for him. This is a guy who hated evangelization. All the religions of the East coming in, like Judaism and Christianity, you were not allowed by edict of the emperor to share your faith. And when it began to fester during his reign, he booted all sects of Jews out of Rome, which you'll see when you get to Acts 18.2 when Priscilla and Aquila show up because he's booted them out of Rome. You've got all these people who are coming, next slide, you got all this stuff going on in the ancient world, so I want you for a moment to imagine yourself a Jew living in first century America, or first century Roman Empire. You're a monotheist. Your neighbors aren't. You value marriage. Your neighbors don't. You value purity, sexual. You want to guard what your eyes see. You're alone in that. You're a freak for that. You see life is valuable. You think the poor should be cared for. And outside of you is this massive 
torrent of wicked, awful, Gentile culture that is bearing down on every community that you have, whether you're in Judea and you've got a large group or you're in one of the synagogues of the many, many cities throughout the Roman Empire, and this awful, perverse, disgusting culture is threatening to pervade in, and I just imagine myself being in one of those cities with clutching Caleb in one hand and clutching Jacob in the other and saying, you cannot have my kids. No, I will not have Gentile influence. Get the Gentiles away. They are wicked. I want nothing to do. I want to insulate my little community with my traditions and my Word of God and my Old Testament Scriptures and literally to hell with everyone else. You're not going to infect my family. And here comes Paul. God's grace belongs to them. Lay down what you have and care for them. Christ, the Messiah, went to the cross for them. Lay down your walls. Go love them. In that kind of a world... You crazy? We can never change this world. You see how wicked it is, Paul? Are you crazy? You think the love of Jesus is going to change the world? You think by lowering down our walls and going and loving them sacrificially that that kind of corruption can be overthrown? Are you kidding? It's so deeply rooted it goes all the way to the top. We'll never change emperors and political kingdoms by the power of the gospel and love and the grace of Christ? Or can it? So Paul goes into the city of Thessalonica. Here's a brief summary of Thessalonica. In 168 B.C., they can't defend themselves, so they give their territory to the Roman Empire and say, we'll be yours, you take care of us. Years go by and a man by the name of Julius Caesar, which you see in this painting, is killed by the Roman Senate, led by Brutus and Cassius. Brutus and Cassius are trying to defend the Republic. Caesar wants to push toward an empire where the emperor has all the power. So they kill him. And then Brutus and Cassius and the Republican forces and the Senate and their guard all flee and they go to this city known as Thessalonica. Or I'm sorry, Philippi. But Octavian, who is going to be the new emperor, Augustus, and Mark Antony go and they find a city that says, we'll let you camp here. And that city is Thessalonica. And so Octavian and Mark Antony totally crush the Senate. The days of the Roman Senate being powerful are done. Here comes the empire. And they get done and they look at Thessalonica and they say, for your allegiance to us, Here comes your reward. You get to be a free city. You get tax benefits. We're going to let you make your own coins. You're going to establish your own magistrates, your own judicial officials, your own city. Basically, you're insulated and you get all the benefits of the Roman Empire's stamp of approval. But you better be good. So Roman merchants and people who are wealthy from all over the place say, wait a minute, 
There's a place where there's tax benefits for Roman citizens. We get to do what? They They mint their own coins? Going to Thessalonica. So they come here, and by hordes, all of these wealthy merchants come into Thessalonica, and guess what happens? All the people who had lived in Thessalonica forever and ever and ever are driven down into poverty because the wealthy come in and they establish monopolies and they control industry and shipping and everything else along this major roadway. And so Thessalonica, in the words of Paul, becomes a place of extreme poverty. But if you were in good with Caesar, (laughs) you were doing well. The poverty became so intense that one of the cults that was in Thessalonica was called the Kabyrus cult. Now listen to this and imagine being a Greek living in that day. If you were in, and this is the largest cult of Thessalonica, by the way, but the Kabyrus cult believed this, that there was this guy Kabyrus, and when the, because they meant their own coins, here's a coin of Kabyrus. And they believed that this guy went around and helped the poor and the downtrodden and those who'd been forgotten and left out. But he had two brothers who killed him. They took his head, wrapped it in a purple cloth, put it on a spear, put a crown on it, buried it at Mount Olympus. And the Thessalonians believed that this person, this guy slain by his brothers, would be resurrected time and time and again. And he would go to help the poor and the downtrodden. And if you wanted to be in the cult of Kabyrus, you had to undergo this ritual. You'd confess all the things that you had done wrong, and then you would be plunged into water that was symbolic of Kabyrus's blood. So Paul comes to Thessalonica preaching, no, 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 no. There's a king who was slain by his brothers who comes to help the poor and the downtrodden and the forgotten. And he was resurrected from the dead. And he comes to save you from your poverty and to give you an eternal inheritance. And the Thessalonians' ears, I imagine, surely pick up. We learn, next slide. We learn it says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And while Paul's ministry is going to impact more pagans than it does believers, he goes into the synagogue first. And now most of us, we've trained our mind. Now think of this. We've trained our mind like if I were going into the Roman world and I was a first century Jew, and I believed in all the Old Testament scriptures, surely the first place that I would go, the place I would go to find refuge, I'd go to the synagogue. For sure, they believe in the Old Testament. I could pick up. we got things in common. This is the most dangerous place Paul can set foot in. Do you remember in Acts 9 when Paul was still breathing murderous threats against the Christians? Where does he go to hunt them down? In the synagogues. Or on his missionary journey when he steps foot in Pisidian Antioch. He goes to the meeting of the synagogue. How did that end up? Well, but the Jews incited devout women and men of high standing and the leading men of the city and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. Or when he goes to Iconium, he enters together in the Jewish synagogue. How is he received? Well, like the last time, he converts a number of people, both Greek and Jew. But what happens? The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds and an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews to mistreat them and to stone them. And when he escapes them and goes to Lystra, these guys from the synagogues chase him down 
And the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. It's like from every city that he goes into, it's like when he steps into the synagogue, it's like, okay, you can tell them the rest of the story. They're going to hate him. They're going to revile him. They're going to go after him. They're going to try to kill him. And yet every city Paul goes into, it's like one of those movies. You just imagine him looking at a sidekick being like, you ready? It's like you want to scream, no, this is not the best way. Do you know what they're going to do to you? These Jews who've got everything protected don't want to hear that you're going after the Gentiles. They don't want to hear about resurrection. They don't want to hear you preaching of another kingdom that belongs to Jesus. It's a dangerous place. In fact, if you read through some of the histories, which is really fascinating, the emperor Claudius had sent letters, edicts, to Alexandria, for instance, saying, don't let any more Jews into your city. Christians, fearing that Christians would come in because it's causing such havoc among the Jews. And he says, if you do that, if you let them come in from Egypt or Syria, you're going to see a side of me you don't want to see. And he threatens them. It's going to be Claudius who boots them out of Rome. It's going to be Claudius who really gets upset with the Christians. He does not like this idea of resurrection. And you see here, I love this. Jesus is known as Jesus of Nazareth. And we have this inscription from Claudius. And what does it say? Why would he send this? If anyone charges that another person has destroyed or has in any manner extracted those who have been buried or has moved sepulchers sealing stones, I wish that violators suffer capital punishment. Now, it seems like a very small, odd thing for the emperor of all the Roman world to send an edict to the podunk town of Nazareth warning people, do not remove stones or take bodies from their tombs. And this is in 41 AD they've dated this. That means that in the 10 years, 10 years, so that includes the stoning of Stephen, the conversion of Paul, in 10 years, the language, the message, the hope of the resurrection has started to foment so much throughout the Roman Empire that it catches the notice of the emperor who sends this edict. This resurrection message, all the strife that's going on in these synagogues, wow. And so we look at this and we think, Paul, what are you doing? You can't go into the synagogue. That's the most dangerous place. But why does he go in there? Next slide. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Think of this culture, Thessalonica. It's been overrun by the powerful. The vast majority of its people are in extreme poverty. And here comes Jesus saying, your king suffered. Your king died. Your king has risen and he's got an eternal inheritance promised for you. And he's taking the Jews all the way from Genesis to Malachi, showing them all the promises of how this Messiah was going to have to suffer. He was going to be the one whose heel would be bruised by the serpent. He's going to be the one, like Isaiah said, that would be cut off from the land of the living. Or like David wrote about, whose body, though dead, would not see decay or corruption. 
This guy who's come and given everything for you and imagine like let all the the ordinariness of the gospel hit you. The God of infinite eternity, infinite power, infinite wealth, infinite glory, infinite holiness becomes a man and gives it all away. Your king has come down from his tower to you, the beggar, and has lifted you up and has given you the promise of the deed to his palace, his kingdom, his throne. If only you would surrender. And this message will preach in Thessalonica where there's nothing but despair at every corner. And so some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But you read in his, in his epistles that the majority of the people who followed and came into the church in the city of Thessalonica turned from idols. They were pagans. They weren't the people of the synagogues, the Greeks. They were the people who worshipped Kabiris or the Roman goddess Roma who put all your faith and hope and This notion that the Roman Empire was your savior and Caesar, all those great Caesars would ultimately provide for you. They saw that as rubbish and they turned to the Lord. And what happens? These extremely poor people. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's Philippi and Thessalonica. Now think about this. He says, for in a severe test of affliction, they're being persecuted just like Paul was. They're going through all kinds of circumstances, all their privileges, their business dry up because they pledge allegiance to Christ. Everything about their lives is crashing down around them because they've pledged allegiance to to Christ and in a severe test of affliction their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed and a wealth of generosity on their part everything for them could not have been worse I guarantee it because if you thought it was bad wait till you see what they do to the people who supported Paul or Jesus and yet in this poverty they gave according to their means as I can testify beyond their means begging us Let that hit you. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. When is the last time you've ever heard of a church having to receive people who were begging to give more? We live in a nation where 3 to 5% of Americans, Christians, tithe. The church has largely become irrelevant. Everything has been handed over to the government. It's the government who educates. It's the government who cares for the sick. It's the government who feeds the hungry. It's the government who clothes the naked. It's the government who does everything. Why? Because the church has relinquished its role. We don't have that earnest desire to come and say, man, I want to help people because if Jesus has given everything for me, Man, I want to reflect that love. I want to go after those who are downtrodden and forgotten. I want to show them the love of Christ. And though I may be in extreme poverty myself, man, I'll lay it down. Because I know that when they see that, like my dad saw the compassion of the church, when they see that, they find out that Christianity is not about a Sunday gathering where we get an inspirational message and go home. It is a life-changing, life purchasing act that Christ has done for His church. 
This is what led Paul to walk away from all the privileges of his upbringing and wealth and the fact that he was on the high road to become on the Sanhedrin and be the big dog on the block. And he traded it all and said, it's all rubbish compared to knowing him. And this is why he would go headlong into these dens of persecution where he knew he was going to be beaten and betrayed and dragged out and kicked from city to city to city. Why does he do it? For us. Paul goes into Europe in a day when Gentiles are forgotten and he starts this massive revival. He throws a spark on these kerosene-soaked logs of people who are desperate of seeing corruption in politics and desperation in poverty and no hope in anything that we look to. And Paul comes and says, here's Jesus. And revival takes over Europe and chances are the majority of us in this room owe our heritage of faith to this man's courage. That's love. That'll start a revival. And he goes on and he says in Thessalonians, you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Ikea, which is Greece. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Ikea, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. When people live radically for the Lord, people take notice. People want that. I remember when I converted, I was a stockbroker working at A.G. Edwards. I had it all. Then God took. My mom came in love with me. My parents' marriage was falling apart. The stock market collapsed because of 9-11. My relationship with my girlfriend fell apart. All my friends were falling into vice. I had become a total drunk where I had blacked out probably four out of seven nights a week. And God took all the things that I was standing on and went... (sighs) And there was one guy in the office next to me who was going through worse things than I had. But I tell you what, when I looked at him, he had the peace of God and joy and a smile. And I thought to myself, holy cow, I want that. There's power in this. There's power in being able to say, I'm not living for this world. I live with open hands. I'm going to go love the person next to me. And show them who this Jesus is. And when the Thessalonians do that, like Paul had before them, the word of this Christianity, the preciousness of it, all over the world from this port city. So, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, these people that used to hang out in the marketplaces. Seneca called them subrastrani because on ships they had a sub under the rostrum. There was a bull's head that they would use to ram other ships. And these people who hung out in the marketplaces were used for that. Go start a riot. Go cause trouble. Ram into stuff. So they go and they round up these people and they say, you see those guys over there, those people who are converting people and talking about Jesus? Ram them is the idea. And they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason's seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there's another king, Jesus. 
When you hear about first century Roman empires, it's such a bad thing that it would be turned upside down. <laughs> when you hear about the kinds of things that these kings do to their subjects, the corruption that exists, is it so bad that they would chase after another kingdom? But they can't have that, so they squash it. They put this down. Anybody who allies themselves with Christ is put down, like Jason being dragged out. And they put a ransom on it to where they say this. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Because Thessalonica is a free city. If we start messing around with things of faith, we might lose our privileges. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so here you've got this choice of two kingdoms. Caesar's way of doing things. This hope in the kingdom of man that man is going to provide for you, that man is going to determine your fate, that the things of this world are your ultimate hope or Christ and Christ alone. And those people chose Caesar and the world. So turning the world upside down, what does it take? I mean, we kind of, we see it in here. We see the people who are willing to lay themselves down pour themselves out, love others radically, to give themselves wholeheartedly to Jesus. And But the Roman Empire could never fall. It could never break through the cracks of that corruption and that kind of wickedness. Pliny, says Pliny the Younger, who went around torturing Christians, trying to get them to stop, wrote back to Trajan, Emperor Trajan, and gives this report. He says, For many of all ages, all classes, both sexes already are brought into danger and shall be. And not only the cities... The contagion of this superstition, Christianity, is spread throughout the villages and the countrysides, but it appears to me possible to stop it and to put it right. And how did those emperors do that? Well, like Nero, he would round up the Christians who were largely hated and he would take them and put them in his garden and he would crucify them on crosses and then light them on fire so that his garden would be lit by Christians who had been rounded up. Nero will crucify Paul or uh, crucify Peter upside down and behead, have Paul beheaded. There was a cost. There was a cost to this. The second century pagan Roman satirist Lucian mocked the Christians for their charity, which in Roman culture didn't make sense. He says the earnestness with which the people of this religion help one another and their needs is incredible. They spare themselves nothing for this end. Their first lawgiver, Jesus, put it into their heads that they were all brethren. This is what they see when they look at Christianity in the early church, and it's spreading beyond their ability to stop it. Or Emperor Julian who says, it's disgraceful when no Jew is a beggar, and the impious Galileans, what he used for Christians, support our poor in addition to their own. Everyone is able to see that our members are in one of aid from us. In other words, you have Julian, who's in charge of the most powerful empire that the history of the world had ever seen. He's got armies at his disposals, disposal, the ability to tax, the ability to do all these things. And he's looking at this ragtag group of impoverished Christians who will not let their brothers go hungry or homeless or sick or unloved. And the whole world sees that. All the people who had for centuries been looking to Rome saying, save us, save us, are now watching the Christians make the government irrelevant. 
Or the Justinian Code, when Christian ethics had saturated, it used to be that if you didn't want a baby, you took your baby, you went out to a stone wall, and you'd let him die by what was called exposure. You left him on the wall, and the sun baked this newborn baby to death, or the birds came, or wolves, or whatever. Justinian comes along and says, think about this, I love this. This is the love of Christ that had come through his people and transformed society. Should exposure occur, the finder of the child is to see that he is baptized and that he's treated with Christian care and compassion. They may be adopted even as we ourselves have been adopted into the kingdom of grace. That is somebody who knew the love of Christ. And when he looked out, when God impacted the heart of the king, when it had so saturated society and the love of Christ was so alluring and beautiful because the people of God lived it, Even the heart of the king is turned and he looks out and he sees the downtrodden, the weakest of these, and he says, my goodness, if he can adopt me. We are like those babies. He has adopted us. He has transformed us. He has brought us into the kingdom of grace. He has given us a footing on an eternal inheritance, one that can never be taken away from us. We have this kingdom and all the petty garbage that wanders around and is plastered all over the news over here. Guess what? It's not going to be fixed by a political remedy. It's going to be fixed when the people of God march with His love and compassion, eager to go out into that Gentile world, eager to go out and to share His love with the very people we think, ew, That will change the world. So we go back and we look at our beginning. Since we're at July 4th, I want to tell you this story. On the left, you see Benjamin Franklin. On the right, you see a preacher by the name of George Whitfield. It's one of the three big preachers during the Great Awakening, which happened in America from 1730 to 1770, just before the Declaration of Independence. And Whitfield came over here preaching. He came from Ireland. And he went all over the nation. And the impact of his preaching, you know, everything in America, by this time all the pilgrim Puritan stuff had kind of fizzled out and America was starting to fall into vice and there were brothels and drunkenness. And these cities, if you read earlier in Franklin's biography, it was a pretty cesspool. And so here comes Whitfield and Franklin, who never converts, who never accepts Christ, watches what happens. So this coming from an objective source... And 1739 arrived among us from Ireland. The Reverend Mr. Whitfield, who had made himself remarkable there as an itinerant preacher, he was at first permitted to preach in some of our churches, but the clergy, taking a dislike to him, soon refused him their pulpit. Sound familiar? Does he stop? No, he loves the people too much. So he was obliged to preach in the fields. The multitudes that attended his sermons were enormous. And it was a matter of speculation to me to observe the extraordinary influence of his oratory on his hearers and how much they admired and respected him, notwithstanding the common abuse of them by assuring them that they were naturally half beasts and half devils. Here's a preacher who understands total depravity, right? He goes and he tells them, you are so lost. You're walking around, all your treasures are in this world, but apart from Christ, you have nothing. Apart from the righteousness of Christ, you are wicked in the sight of God, worthy of His punishment. And He is a just God and will pour it out on you. And He lays it down. 
And Franklin is watching this thinking, my goodness, if the people are hearing this, he's saying, what about them? Surely they're going to throw them out just like all the other churches did. It was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants from being thoughtless or indifferent about religion. That makes me think of my dad. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in the different families of every street. The Spirit of God using the faithfulness of one preacher who would not be stopped despite all the barriers and all the walls, who pushes in and loves these people, and the Spirit of God takes that and lights a nation ablaze. And the effects of that are why we have the nation we have today. One of the people who, during the Great Awakening, became on fire for the Lord was another preacher. His name was John Witherspoon. Signer of the Declaration, was made president of Princeton. He was so influential in America that when England first heard about the shot, the shot heard around the world, the Prime Minister Horace Walpole said to Parliament, Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian pastor. <laughs> this guy. He served at Princeton, taught fiery gospel message, lit his students up for the Lord. His, it's 26 years, 478 graduates. He produced 114 ministers, 13 governors, three U.S. Supreme Court justices. Mind you, this is when there's 13 colonies, 20 U.S. senators, 33 U.S. congressmen, one vice president, and the president, James Madison, who crafted the U.S. Constitution. Do you know what the British called the soldiers because the priests or the, the, the ministers back in that day were so forceful at going to them and saying you will not bow to any king but King Jesus he is your ultimate authority first and then you pay respect and honor to the king but do not let him take away from you the inalienable rights that God has given you and the ministers of this country so set ablaze the people that when the British referred to America's armies they called them the black regiments because the pastors were out with them, wearing their black robes. And the rallying cry of the troops, no king but King Jesus. This nation was born out of the fruit of revival. And let me tell you right now, you look at all the headlines, and I'll be the first to tell you, it doesn't look good. You know, all the polls that say for the first time ever, people think America is going to be worse the next generation than the generation before. we got $16 trillion in debt. We've lost our moral compass. We're like a boat that's lifted up the anchor. We don't refer to God when we decide what's moral and not anymore. We are a nation adrift. And let me tell you something. It's not going to be solved with politicians. You are the answer. The church of Jesus Christ is the answer. To set this nation ablaze, to point them to the preciousness of Jesus Christ and what He can do to your life. Just like the church turned Rome around and the church turned America around. Here's the good news. 
If you're like me, you look at this nation and you think it's crumbling. I don't know how fast, but it's definitely headed in the wrong direction. I don't know if we can recover. But when I read the Old Testament, here's the good news, and I hope this excites you. Every time God is about to start a major revival, read your scriptures. Every time he's about to start a major revival, you know what he does? He goes around to that society and he begins to bust up their idols. Whether it's the plagues that knock down the gods of Egypt or Josiah or Hezekiah or Elijah, wherever it is, he comes in and man, he starts taking out their idols. I look at my own conversion and I look at all the petty little things that I used to cling to for all my security and thank God he comes along and goes, what's America's idol? Well, what are our idols? Money, convenience, sex. I remember when I first became a believer, I was zealous. You know, I really desperately wanted everybody in my family to come to the Lord. I'll close with this. Took my brother Mike and his wife, who's really allergic to religion, uh, at least uncomfortable talking about it. It Sweet. Both of them are awesome people. But allergic to religion. And my brother Mike says to me, so Sam, I want you to give me your one best shot. Tell me why you're in Christian ministry. And I'm like, here's the chance. Like I've tried to avoid talking about this because it only causes problems. But all right, here we go. And I tried to deliver the most beautiful, eloquent summary of the gospel and why he needed it. And he ended and Laura and I are sitting there and he looks at us and says, Sam, I got a six bedroom house. I've got three healthy girls. I've got a wife who loves me. You know, it's good that it's working for you. I don't need a Savior. And it made me leave there. And, t- and talking with Laura on the way home, I'm like, if, the, if what prevents my brother Mike from seeing his need of Christ is all the prosperity that God has blessed him with, if God takes it away, Thank you. If God has to bring this nation to its knees, and here's where it gets exciting, kind of scary if it happens, but if God brings this nation to the knees, everybody who's got their feet planted firmly on the sinking sand of all the worldly garbage is going to be clutching for whatever they can find that's not budging. And I hope they see the church of Christ. I hope they see that the church of Christ, come whatever circumstances, whether it's your money, whether it's your whatever, sees you like I saw the guy in the office next to me at A.G. Edwards who just seemed unshaken by it all, whose feet are so firmly planted in Christ that it's like nothing shakes this guy. If God comes and begins to start knocking down idols in America, may we be those with our feet planted on the rock who are not moved by the whims of what happened in our nation because our inheritance is secure in the kingdom of Christ. So I'll close with this quote from C.S. Lewis because I think I've closed every sermon I've ever preached here with a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this. It's brilliant. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. 
It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for this nation. I thank you for men like the Apostle Paul and all that have gone before us and and the legacy of our faith that have given us this heritage for all the people in our nation who have gone before us to give us the liberties that we have. Lord, I don't think there's anyone in here, Republican or Democrat, that wouldn't see our nation as being upside down or heading in the wrong direction and suffering from some sickness that politics cannot cure. Lord, You are our King. You write our tomorrows. You are sovereign. You turn the heart of the King. Lord, I pray that we would have revival here without falling into hard times. But if it is hard times that must bring a revival, Lord, I pray that Your will would be done. I pray that for those in here that right now are are struggling through things, that You would give them a firm grasp of Your kingdom, that they would know that their inheritance, their eternal inheritance is never shaken. And give us all hearts that understand that and live with open hands eager to show the world, eager to give away all the idols that the world treasures, that they can see that you are supreme over all of it. Thank you for this day. And we pray, Lord, that you would make your name great in this church, this city, and this nation. Christ's sake, amen.